1: To create a listener account and in that listener account you can save episodes for later listening so you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today.
2: Everybody. Welcome to the New Books Network, Native American Studies and History. This is Ryan Tripp, yet again, um, here to introduce you to another new book in the field. Today we have uh, Professor Drew uh, Lopenzina from Old Dominion University in uh, Norfolk, Virginia. Um, he is the author of a much lauded study um, on uh, Native American um Authors and Authority in Print Culture in uh, the uh, Colonial and Early Republic Periods, uh, Red Ink. Um, I'm familiar with his uh, earlier book, um, as is, I think, many people in uh, Native Studies and History. Um, He just recently published earlier this year uh, the book that we're going to be discussing Through the Indians Looking Glass, a cultural biography of William Apis Pequot. Uh, Professor Lopenzina, welcome. Hi, Ryan. How are you? So, uh, before we start, we get into anything else, I'd like to uh, discuss this uh, lovely cover of your, your new book. Um, <laughs> it's a photo montage of an 1831 portrait of uh, William Apis um, Pequot, who we're going to be discussing in a brief minute, um, as well as a, a Methodist camp meeting as depicted by uh, Harry Peters, America on Stone. Uh, can you uh, elucidate and elaborate on uh, this photomontage cover?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, for the cover, I'd like to say I had have complete control over the artistic design of the book. That, that's not necessarily true, but I chose the images. So w- with William Apis, there's really only this one image that we have of him, and it's the portrait that was done um Probably in eighteen thirty, I guess, by John Paradise, who was a, a a portraitist who had done a lot of work with the Methodist organization at the time, so I, I think anybody who's familiar with Apis has seen this this picture. It was the frontispiece of yes. the second edition of his uh, uh, memoir, Son of the Forest." so we didn't want to just put the picture on the book and, and I really kind of struggled with with so how can we do this a little bit different? And and the idea I had was to make it look like he was looking at his own image in a looking glass. Number one, and then uh, the the scene behind it, the Harry Peters um, painting. I, I looked at a lot of uh, representations of Methodist camp meetings, and and this one just kind of struck me. It, it's actually kind of problematic. Um, the 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 painting itself that it's drawn from, uh, Harry Peters. Did did a lot of uh so I, I I probably shouldn't even draw people's attention to this but he did a lot of really sort of uh uh insulting sort of stereotypical uh, Jim Crow type art in in this time period and you can if you could see the painting really? clearly you, you'd notice that a little bit um so there's a there's a uh a representation of a of a Negro and a real minstrel sort sort of tradition but I in the picture it looked like the preacher. Uh was a dark skinned preacher, and that 's what I was looking for somebody who could be possibly a Native American sitting up on that because this is this is a scene that would have been very familiar to apis this would have been the the real lifeblood of his ministry was going to these sort of camp meetings, and he always spoke so warmly of them and it was just the image that I could find to sort of lay in the back that that uh closely most closely um represented that aspect of his experience
2: very interesting. So the the reason it's slightly uh, the cover is slightly blurred is that you're, it's it's representing the looking glass. Just wanted exactly. to
1: confirm that. Yeah, exactly, exactly.
2: Very interesting. So uh, William Apis claimed that his father uh, William is William Apis's father. Is it Apis? It's just Apis with one s. Yes.
1: That's right. The original spelling, uh, at least the the spelling that that his father seems to have used and and that he used himself uh, through uh, some of his life is just with the one S. There's a lot of discussion about how to pronounce his name. Um, Yes, I've (laughs) I've read. (laughs) So I I don't know if you want to go into detail about that. The interesting thing is I I saw in his marriage certificate, um, it was spelled A-P-I-S, and it occurred to me at that moment that the, that he had said his name to the, the, um, preacher who was, who was writing it up for him. And, and so that person spelling it phonetically spelled it A P I S, which, which suggests to me that it was a piss. Um, <laughs> a, so that that's, that's, I, I, I could have gone different ways, but I, I still say apis and, and I know there are others who, who would go a different nice. route with that. Yeah. Most scholars that I've
2: heard pronounce it apis. So, uh, William Apis claimed that his father uh, was the offspring of a Mashantucket Pequot woman and a white man, quoting him. You further explained that his gradually emancipated mother, Candace Apis, was most likely the offspring of a a Pequot uh, matron basket seller. Uh, There's speculation that perhaps it was Ann Wompy and a man of African-American descent. William Apis also recorded that um, in 1802 1803 his parents quote quarreled, parted, and went off yes. a great distance, leaving their helpless children to the care of their maternal Pequot grandparents you add that you add that twenty years would pass before apis saw his mother's face again. What did Pequot mean to William apis first as a child and then as an adult across figurative and in your book at times literal X marked. A native space. Uh, in addition to that, can you also elaborate on any probable reunion with his mother, That again, that you refer to, prior to her 1838 death in Hartford?
1: Yeah. Um, so, first of all, a lot of this is based on, I, I, I just go by what Apis tells us in his memoir. So, he talks about his, his grandfather, uh, his uh, paternal grandfather being a white man. He talks about um, his paternal grandmother being a native woman of the Pequod nation. And, and so this is the information he gives us. I searched, um, I did a lot of digging to try and figure out who those people might be. Um, and, and really I came up short and and it was one of the the big disappointments of this research was, was not being able to identify who those people are. I I have some guesses. They're, they're interesting guesses. And I speculate a little bit bit about it in the book, but, um, as for his mother. his mother was a uh, a slave she belonged to a captain taylor i, I again my understanding cuz cause, cause apis is not really i think there there are a lot of reasons that he's not anxious to to broadcast this information so he doesn't actually ever say that his mother um was was in slavery when 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 he was born but uh but it's clear that she was and and that it's very possible that her his father actually sold land uh, to have her um, emancipated or, or to arrange the marriage that they that they ultimately had. And Apis himself, by Connecticut law, would have been a slave had he been born in Connecticut. And this is really interesting um, because in, in 1798, when he was born, your condition followed the condition of your mother, and his mother was a slave. And, and so he would have been in slavery by law, except he was born in Partis. Massachusetts. I, I'm sorry? Partis law, yeah, that you're referring to? Yeah, the the gradual emancipation law. Um, yes. Right. And so, and, and and even that law was not in effect quite yet, I think, or, or maybe it had just come into effect. So at any rate, um, he's born in Massachusetts, and, and it's possible that the family went up there to avoid him being born in Connecticut for that reason. As for his Pequod culture, um, you know, I, I guess the only thing I can say is, is is the way he was raised, I think even today, like a lot of Native people can... Relate to the the condition of, of growing up and not knowing a lot about your heritage. I, I think, particularly in the Northeast, um, a number of people who I know um, amongst my acquaintances who 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 really came to understand their identity a little bit later in life and 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 spent a lot of their life trying to um, pull it back together and understand it more. And 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 those who made that that great in- commitment and, and and embraced that identity. Um, that brought difficulties into their life in some ways, but also a lot of enrichment. I think Apis was like that as well. I think as, as an indentured as an indentured servant, he was raised with white families after his his he left his uh, grandparents' house, and 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 there was nothing. So it, what's interesting is he didn't have a lot of direct contact with this Pequot culture, and this was part of the design of the the settler colonial. State was to break up these family networks, to do everything you could to disenfranchise this this culture and and, and break up their attachment to their community and their land base. So uh, he, he he had contacts, and and we don't want to say that he that there was nothing there, but I think it was it was difficult for him to to understand a lot of it and to maintain uh, really firm relationships. And, uh, but he never was allowed to forget that he was Indian, right? So his, the people who, who raised him, uh, the white family that, that he was indentured to the Furmans, uh, he, he relates how like Mr. Furman, whenever he got angry with him, which seems to be pretty frequently, uh, would not only whip him, but would say like, would call him you Indian dog and, uh, and other, uh, denigrations of that sort. And so Apis was very much reminded of his, I guess, subaltern status, um, but at the same time, um, he wasn't um, ever uh, fully a part of his own community. Now, he, he did have contact with that community, and, and and it's it's almost an invisible part of his narrative at certain places. And we have to sort of read between the lines to to figure out just how much contact he had. I think as a child... He 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 clearly, you know, he would go to visit his father from time to time and and he had other contacts with the I think the uh, spiritual community that he tried to have relationships with the firmans were always trying to disrupt that connection and he says himself that he never that once his family broke up his his mother and father left um, this was a common condition for native children at this time and it's heartbreaking when you start to realize the enormity of this um how these families were deliberately torn apart and and economically uh you know even, even if you could try to keep the family together the father would have to go off either either working as farmhands wherever the work was or, or a lot of uh, Pequod men worked on whaling ships and would be gone for years at a time um and so the family unit, it was hard to keep it together, and the women were often left in incredibly vulnerable situations themselves and often were servants of households as well themselves, and so it was hard for them to raise their own children. And, and so it wasn't unusual that his parents left, but in Apis's case, he writes that when his, his parents kind of went their own way when he was about four years old, uh, he didn't see his mother's face again, he says, for another 20 years. And, and I would imagine that when he did run into her again, it was, you know, he he would have had enough connections within the community to to find her. It's interesting. He says that he never mentions meeting his mother again, right? So this is another absence in his his narrative. But but except for that one thing, he says it would be twenty years before I saw their faces again. So so he must have seen her on his travels. He probably, you know, knew where she was, and and if she was living in Hartford for all that time, we know she died in the Hartford area. Um, he probably. Um, You know, this was this was on his route. And so he would probably stop in maybe maybe more than once as an adult when he when he when he reconnected with her. But we just don't know. Thank you. That
2: uh, clarified that for me. I'm going to read a quote from uh, William Apis. William Apis laments um, that I could never think that the government acted right toward the natives. Not merely refusing to pay us, but in claiming our services in cases of perilous emergency, in his case, the War of 1812, and still deny the right of citizenship. And as long as our nation is debarred the privilege of voting for civil officers, I shall believe that the government has no claim on our services. How does, as you contend, uh, this, his declaration of nationhood and the inclusive pronoun our reflect his emerging notions of native sovereignty.
1: Okay. It's important to understand that. Um, so William Apis fought in the war of 1812 and he was, he was a very, he, he was really, he, he was not of service age when he was conscripted into the army. He was 15 years old Um and, and ostensibly, they, they brought him in as a drummer boy. That was sort of a, a way they could get around this. But he was immediately um, marshaled into service once once they they got their their hooks on him in the army. And they marched him up to um, Plattsburgh, where he was ultimately stationed. And so he's he's a 15 year old child. And he 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 talks about you know it must have been a difficult thing for a a, a native child marshaled into the U.S. Army, having to fight for a country and a nationality to which he had very little allegiance, um, really in most ways, I think. Right. I mean, he knew that, that, and any, he, he writes about this in, in an ironic tone that, that, these were my conquerors and, and I was forced to uh, go up and, and fight for them. And, and they would, he was teased relentlessly. Uh, uh, some of the officers would, would joke about, uh, tying him to the stake and torturing him. And, 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 and so that was the kind of stuff he put up with. But, um, so he's a young man when he's, he's, he's a 15, 16-year-old man when he's he's noticing a lot of these things at the end of the war and and realizing this dynamic. Of course, he's writing about it in 1829. So this is many years later when his political consciousness, by the time he's writing his memoir, he, he has a, a whole different consciousness about all of this than, than perhaps he had when he was a 15, 16-year-old uh, uh, adolescent fighting those battles. But nevertheless, I believe in the war, um, he made a lot of attachments with with Native people. the uh, the The army was working closely with local Mohawk communities in the area, and it looks like he was stationed with um, with uh, with um, uh, Elia, Eliezer Williams, who is a, a interesting but controversial figure from. From the Mohawk community, um, but but they they would have been fighting together in the same fort in one of the decisive battles of the war, which was the Battle of Plattsburgh. At any rate, he probably uh, he, he I, I believe when Apis left the war, he left with these Mohawk communities, and he and he ended up living in Canada, probably as a deserter. Um, why else would you go to Canada at that point after the War of eighteen twelve, and and he was staying with these with these. Um, Haudenosaunee, uh Mohawk communities, probably the Taondenega Mohawk for the most part and and he was i think he was picking up i think he was impressed by by some of the cohesion that was in this community that may have been lacking amongst the Pequod community who had sort of been at ground zero of of colonialism for for you know from the start um and had suffered more disruption the pequods had but he He's noticing these dynamics. He certainly heard the grievances of soldiers at the time. And by the time he's writing this, by 1829, he's really developed a much more political consciousness. And he understands that that Natives were were poorly treated, that they weren't given the – that the promises that were made, most of them were not paid after their services. They were – their reward was basically that that the lands that that they had fought and and aligned with the U.S. Army to protect – were now being offered to white soldiers um, as compensation because the army couldn't afford to pay people in in, in money in, in currency and so often land was offered instead and and that was always of course indigenous land that was being offered so I think I, I guess to answer your question by time William apis is writing this he, he has a very much developed the consciousness of 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 Native people as, as part of his identity, he's embraced this at this point in his life, but it's something that's just beginning to form when he is the young man who's actually experiencing this if that if that makes sense, right?
2: Yes, it does. In his 1836 eulogy to King Philip, uh, William Apis calls for all quote "red children to pray to the great Spirit, the Indian God. Now, you argue that in this passage, Apis transports, transports himself back to his uh, 1815 eighteen fifteen eighteen sixteen ascent to the summit on the Bay of Quint, before the soundless lake on the mountain mystery, whose waters, sprung from underground currents, continued to feed the fluid materials of a spiritual narrative that cascade downward from that pure source through hollowed rock and into the earth's moving waters. Of this place, where the people of the forest held all things in common, Apis cannot speak. Why was this ascent to the lake on the mountain so significant for William Apis? Did the summit represent an, an awakening for what you describe as his negative work?
1: Yeah, so it, it's important to understand that this is a moment in Apis' um, 1829 memoir, A Son of the Forest, that where, where he talks about he, he sort of just throws it in randomly, almost as though he just happened to be a tourist um, uh, traveling around Canada. And he experienced what he calls this mysterious body of water that that, according to local legend, uh, has no uh, is, is is soundless, he says, which means it has no bottom. Right. You, you could just keep going down and down and down. And and he just talks about it as this 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 um, this this natural wonder of sorts. And, and and he also talks about a rock with a hole in it. And so he, he kind of throws it in there in, in this one paragraph. And in the 1829 edition, as he mentions this, he, he then he he describes, and then I turn, you know, as though he's standing before these sites. And then he says, I turned around and I saw the children of the forest and, and the order and regularity of their encampments. And and in the 1829 edition, he, he he adds, and they held all things in common, which, which he extracted from the 1831 version, which is the one that most people read. But so there's been a lot of speculation about this passage. Um, Lisa Brooks, uh, who's an Abenaki scholar uh, who wrote a book called The Common Pot that is, that is highly regarded in, in indigenous uh, Native studies circles. And and she talks about this as and, and other scholars have looked at this moment too. It's one of those moments where where you realize that uh William Apis can't really in, in in the 18, late 1820s and 1830s, when William Apis is writing, as a uh as a Methodist missionary, by the way, as a Methodist preacher, he cannot speak to indigenous spirituality. Um not in this this sort of discursive setting. It, it's just not something that he can talk about or embrace in any way, because th- this is a this is it's kind of it, it's a, it's forbidden speech in some ways. He, he's speaking as a as a Christian, and his whole authority comes from this Christian identity that that he performs and 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 to I think is embraced, but he performs it on the stage, and that's where he gets his ability to critique Western culture from. And, and the authority to be a scold uh, and, and, a, and a powerful speaker, advocating for native rights. So he gets all that authority from from this this Christian uh, subject position that he's that he's embraced. But at the same time, he's very aware of how na- native communities are still practicing uh, uh, their own spiritual. Um, perhaps syncretic systems of, of worship and belief and ceremony, that these things survive. And and so Lisa Brooks refers to this moment up on the the, the that lake as as his native conversion experience. Um that that despite his 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 profession of Christianity, uh, this is where he, he actually is opened up to to an indigenous spirituality and an understanding of of indigenous um community in, an in, in indigenous space. So people have speculated something interesting is going on there. Nobody was able to pinpoint where this place was until I went up there and, and, and discovered that he's talking about what's called the lake on the mountain, um, in the Bay of Kinte, uh, and, and it's in, in Ontario. And, and, and it's this really uh, rather specti- spectacular and, and perhaps powerful spot. But I believe that when Apis was there, it wasn't by chance that he was there. He didn't just stumble upon this place. So I want to remind you that that William Apis is, a, and I talk about this a lot in my book, I think it's really important. I, you have to understand William Apis is a child of trauma, He's suffering from the cultural trauma of of just being Pequod in the 1830s, which which is enough in and of itself if you understand the history leading into that, and being abandoned as a child, being severely beaten uh, by his grandmother, which is an incident that I, I talk about in great length in the in the opening passages of the book. Something that he also bravely talks about, I think. Um, but but that's that's a real trauma. I mean, severely beaten, broken bones, uh, and then he's indentured out to white families, separated from his his community, and and he's whipped and and, and treated badly, and and uh, his indenture is traded as though he were a slave at times. And then, as a fifteen year old child, he's brought into war. Uh, he he's fought in some of the the, the fiercest combat of the war of eighteen twelve. So when I say he's a child of trauma, I, I mean that very literally. He is somebody who suffered severe traumas in his life and 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 so in this period when he's in Canada after the war, he's really just trying to figure out how to stay on his feet and and I think he finds solace in in these indigenous communities, particularly the Tiendeegan Mohawk who he's staying with and he's not at this place by chance as he suggests in the book that he just kind of dropped in. He's there for ceremony and and I, I, this is speculation on my part. I know he was there for ceremony. This is a very powerful place in in the spiritual community of, of the local indigenous people. But but he's there, I think, for a healing ceremony, a ceremony for for many of the warriors who, who had been in the battle and been in war to heal themselves and 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 to to reintegrate them back into the community. And so this is a really important place to him. And to get back to your question, this is a long uh, winding road, but but by 1836 many many years later when he's performing his spectacular eulogy on King Philip and he's speaking in the voice of of the Wampanoag um leader from the the 17th century King Philip the famous Wampanoag leader and he invokes at some moment he 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 starts speaking of the Indian god and and, and at that moment he's sort of speaking in the voice of Philip um and and almost unmooring himself from his otherwise Christian subject position, and I think so. What, what I'm doing at that moment in the book, which sounds perhaps like romantic language, but I, I'm, I'm sort of seeing how at that moment Apis is is drawing on this this the sustenance of of these these moments that sort of he glues together to create his own indigenous identity, and part of that is that. Native conversion experience, as Lisa Brooks described it, on, on the lake on the mountain. And also um, certain aspects of, of Pequod tr- tradition and Pequod culture um, where, where these uh, certain places where, where there are brooks and, and water uh, moving through rock, just as in Tyandenega, are really places of power. And and, and so I think APIS is drawing on that indigenous side of his identity here, that indigenous power um, to, to perform this history on stage. And, and that's what I'm trying to invoke and bring all of these elements together at at this moment, which is at the highlight of his career, I think, as a public speaker and advocate for Native uh, native causes.
2: Yes, we'll uh, discuss trauma in a more in more detail um in a minute um it's prominent lens throughout your book you first you contend that the apis family uh william apis's f- uh, family quite possibly was providing refuge for a female slave listed in the 1830 census for their manhattan households uh, can you elaborate a little bit um on this um this possibility, I only ask because the same census taker described his wife Mary, who was the child of an English woman and a, apparently a native, ambiguous native of Spain. Um, the census taker described her as a colored female, one
1: precarious step above a chattel slave. So, can you elaborate more on that? Yeah, uh, first of all, I, I just I take that from the eighteen thirty census. So Apis was living in New York in eighteen thirty, and and I only know this. Actually, from the eighteen thirty census, it's one of the rare moments where where apis appears in the archive um, in, in a way that he didn't insert himself there. In other words, you know his books and his his writings, of course, put him in the archive but but here's where 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 uh, the white dominant power culture sort of noticed him they They wrote his name down that he was living I want to say on King Street in Manhattan at that time and And so, if you know the, how these censuses are set up, it lists all the members of the household, and uh, so it 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 says that he's he's there, and then it says there's um there are there's two children there, and it, it, I'm sure it was two of Apis's younger children at the time, and then it it's, it says one colored woman, but then it lists one person as in the status as slave, um and and this was a a, a special category and designation in the census sheets, and so. It's it's really I mean that's 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 it that's all I had to go on there, and I know Apis spoke out against slavery enough. I, I know he wouldn't have had his own. Uh, he he would, of course, not have been a slave owner himself, particularly given his own personal history and his politics and everything else. But um, I, I so my speculation. So what was that person doing there? I don't know. Uh, was he harboring a runaway slave? New York was going through its own. Uh, gradual abolition law at the time it's, it, and and so th- this it's it's a bit of a mystery it's just something that it, it it popped out in the census records to me and I felt as as somebody who's telling this story I had to I had to make sense of it somehow or at least try um apis was very much involved with the abolitionist movements at this time and he he was in those circles um So I I speculate that perhaps he was harboring uh, an escaped slave. This, of course, is not something that he would tell to the census taker. I don't know how the census census takers could write things down just based on what their own Assessment was and and sometimes you know if they saw a person of color they might just mark that person as a slave. Why they distinguished his wife I, and again I don't even know if that was his wife. The other woman of color there was not I don't believe designated as his wife, but I, I speculate that it must have been. It could have been his sister. Um, you know, so there there are other possibilities. But because and there were also two children there, I can only guess. Yes, a compelling passage in the book. You also
2: argue that in uh, uh, William Apis's 1834 memorial, which was drafted shortly after his family's adoption into the Mashpee Wampanoag tribe and then published in the uh, Anti-Slavery Liberator that this memorial has not been reprinted anywhere since. That's right. I included it as, as a seminal contribution to Native literature. Now, in the context of uh, Apis's role in the Mashpee nullification revolts, why was this memorial a seminal contribution to late Native literature?
1: Well, first of all, any document written by a native at this time, um, at a time when when so few uh, Native people had the well had the education and or even the means to appear in print, um, it, it, it's uh, it's a it's an important document just on the basis of that alone but it's also just a, a really fascinating document um because of its historical position within what what was known as you know the mashpee revolt um which is a misnomer of course but uh but yes <laughs> so it, it's it's an important document in terms of that history but it, it's it's a document so it it was hidden he, he talks about writing this thing and and I picked up in in a number of different places by by people in in the press uh, often enemies of Apis in the press who there, there were particularly particular newspapers in Barnstable that were very harshly uh, uh, critical of Apis and and wanted to see him locked up. But I, I, I gathered somehow that that he had written and printed this document and 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 nobody knew about it. And um and so I, I had it, it, it was really kind of some painstaking work to finally locate it in the uh, uh, working through the digital archives. But I, I finally found that it was published in the Liberator, and 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 that he had written it in jail. And so it, it kind of, I mean, it, it kind of puts it in this interesting tradition. Not only is this important historical document, it's an unknown document by William Apis. That 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 is a a, a, a I mean, it's not a huge document, but it, it's about you know five or six pages long or, or thereabouts. And and so it's a significant document, and it's also. Really, it contributes. It's it's within this tradition of, of what I call it, like, you know, the indigenous prison literature, where he's writing this from jail. Uh, he, he's he's in jail because of his peaceful resistance. Um, uh, he, he had committed. I mean, it, it's absurd, really. He was he was arrested um, for trespassing and inciting a riot. Um, he was trespassing on his own ground and at at the, the Mashpee meeting house, which was built and erected for the Mashpee to use, and the riot that was incited where the white people that were trying to um actually lynch him um uh because they were upset that he was he was kind of wrecking this great system this thing they had that they could just come into mashpee land and take their wood for free and use those resources uh to enrich themselves um with the mashpee receiving nothing in return so so William Apis, the whole Indian nullification movement um was meant to break up this racket um of white domination, and and so this document speaks to all of those things, but it's written in jail, and and, and so to me, one of the fascinating things about the whole uh, the whole thing that happened in Mashpee in 1833 and 1834 is that it's one of the first moments, if not the first moment, that we can identify of somebody putting tactics of civil disobedience into effective practice. Um, even before Thoreau is ever talking about it, and and like Thoreau, like Martin Luther King, uh, like other people who, who who sort of stand at the forefront of, of movements of civil disobedience, Apis went to jail for it, and this document comes right out of prison. And so, to me, it's almost like Martin Luther King's letter from Birmingham Jail in a way, where 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 Apis's his position in jail is 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 conferring a kind of moral authority on him. He's, he's witnessing for his community by spending time in jail. And while he's spending time in jail, uh, he, he's, he's, he's in jail to expose the injustices that have been rampant in this community. And he's also forging this document that is ultimately going to lead to the restoration of Mashpee rights. So I think it's a really important document. And it was, uh, it was a really exciting find. Yeah, it was an exciting moment in the book. Um,
2: going toward his end of his life and uh, the uh, end of the book, uh, you suggest that William Apis's, uh penultimate and enigmatic theatrical role as Indian prophet – and again, like the revolts, I'm quoting this uh, – um, uh, Indian prophet, in turn, served as a generative narrative framework because there was no one who came forward to bind Apis's wounds. How did this 1837 role help Apis overcome the, quote, traumatic moment defined by both you and trauma specialist Jonathan Shea, speaking of trauma, as thermos or an unexpected catastrophe that shatters the social narrative framework by which one has ordered one's life? Did this traumatic moment for Apis derive from his own life as well as his uh, identity as a Pequot, which we earlier discussed? Okay.
1: Yeah. I, so I have to unpack that a little bit. He's, so th- this is this interesting moment and, and I was discovering this, um, simultaneously with a, a couple of other scholars out there. Philip Gora talks about it in his book briefly. Um, uh, Daniel Radis is another, um, person who's been doing native studies who, who came upon this, but, but what it was and, and, and what's, what's enabled this is, is to be quite honest is, um, is digital archives where you can go into into newspaper, do these newspaper database searches, and and all of a sudden Apis started showing up in, in interesting places where nobody knew he had been, and and so part of it, and and I was able to do some additional um, uh, archiving on this that that helps to round out the story somewhat. It's still a bit mysterious though. So at the end of his career, Apis moves away from the role of methodist preacher it seems like and and by time he gets to the eulogy on king philip so it, it's important to understand that that apis he, he his his moment of fame and, and for about 10 years he 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 was his I, 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 almost a household name i mean apis is, apis was a known figure in the northeast in the 18 late 1820s and through the 1830s um, and he could go, he'd go and he, he, he had these circuits that he'd go around. He was a great self promoter and he was great at, 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 promoting his, his, his books and his causes, but he would go to, to these various churches and meeting houses and whatnot. And he would attract really big crowds and they'd come to see the, the Indian preach. And just as that was the case with Samson Ockham, um, a number a generation earlier, the, the, the great Mohegan preacher, People came to see the spectacle, I think, as much as, you know, they, they, people, this was a novelty. The Indian who's supposed to be the, the unschooled savage, of course, standing up in front of the pulpit and, and delivering the word of God, such as it is. And so, uh, this, this was an act worth seeing. And so people would come to see it and they, and, and, and he had a, he had a thing going, but he had his, uh, little bit of a falling out with the Methodist organization, and he started his own ministry in Mashpee for a while, where he started the Church of the Free Free and United Church of Mashpee, I believe it was called, and and he could have stayed there. And I I was I really tried. Scholars have tried to speculate what happened in Mashpee, why he didn't leave, and there there was some speculation that he had a falling out with the people at Mashpee. I don't think that was true necessarily. And he bought a house there. Um, I actually. I, I I found where the house was, and, and there's some interesting backstory to that that didn't make it into the book. But um, so at any rate, the point being, he might have stayed there, but for some reason he didn't. He 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 could have had a pretty nice gig in Mashpee, but he decided to move on. And and part of that was probably just because he 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 still he still had a calling, and and he he had been very effective in in these sort of long-range itinerant um, uh, uh, routes that he he operated whatever the case I, and so part of it is I believe it was his trauma that that pushed him forward that he that he couldn't stay still and and so this is just my interpretation but but I think understanding what I know of trauma and how it it can operate on people um, I think he was incredibly restless and 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 moving forward and, and continuing to stay on the road was a way to sort of outrun it a little bit. Um, and, and, and at any rate, uh, he he he's already started to move away from the ministry when he does his eulogy on King Philip. He moves from the church to the theater. So when he did the eulogy on King Philip, this was at the Odeon Theater. And, he, and again, he filled the Odeon Theater in Boston two nights in a row. Um, so we're talking about hundreds of people coming in to see this performance. And then some of the new information that's been uncovered is he actually, he continued to take the show on the road once again. And so he's performing at meeting houses and and town halls and, 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 um, and and all these sort of places um, delivering this eulogy. And then, so we knew about, we sort of knew that he'd written the eulogy and this was a departure for him, but now he's in New York city and he's appearing at lecture halls uh, Clinton Hall was sort of this this uh, intellectual salon, if you will, for for uh, for people interested in in cultural um talks and whatnot and and it I think it had been uh, established by the new york by New York University and he's appearing at Clinton Hall and a number of other places, and we only know this from newspaper advertisements. We don't know the material that he was that but we don't know the material of the speech that he was delivering, but it was probably like all his other campaigns in the past, it was probably in promotion of a book that he was working on or an idea for a book that he had. And in these speeches, he was promoting himself. We can see this from the newspaper advertisements as the Mohawk prophet. And I'm not going to try and say the name. Um, it, it's, it's got many syllables and and I don't have it in front of me right now, but basically the, the provenance of that name, he didn't just make it up. It, it's actually, uh, uh, Handsome Lakes a, a name it was Handsome Lakes indigenous name and, and Handsome Lake was actually um well he was an important uh figure in in, in the Haudenosaunee revitalization movement um in the late 1700s and and so I, I don't think Apis knew a whole lot about Handsome Lake I don't even think but but I think it was that his interpretation of the name which he got from Drake's Book of the Indians which had been published uh, a couple of years earlier was I think um uh deep, beautiful lake or something like that. And I think that name for him is once again, a touchstone to, to his Indian conversion experience, that moment on the lake on the mountain, which, which is a place of power for him, I believe. So here's the thing. I don't think that this helped him recover his trauma. I, I, I see this as almost a part of his ongoing trauma. I, I see it as, as William Apis all of a sudden wearing this new identity and um, and And performing in in this different way and 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 appropriating different cultural costumes, if you will, um, metaphorical costumes, because he's still trying to figure something out. He's still working to understand who he is and and where he fits. Um, he's kind of he's still in some ways a cultural orphan. and and this is still part of his trauma acting now in some ways, but it but at the same time, it's part of his working through it. So Jonathan Shays is somebody who's done a lot of work with, with, with veterans uh, uh, who experience combat trauma, which, which I believe APIS is one. But, but I think a lot of um, scholars have talked about trauma in this way um, in, in our contemporary moment, that trauma, uh, that we all live within certain cultural narratives. And it's those narratives that, that give us our identity these narratives, like like in literary theory, we might call it discourse, maybe. But we live in certain discourse discursive regimes, and and we get our sense of identity from these regimes or discourses. And trauma is is when that narrative gets broken up uh, unexpectedly, uh, violently, explosively, and all of a sudden, all the things that that help to constitute our identity, um, have they no longer hold? Uh, you can't. Uh, you can't maintain those truths anymore because they become inoperative because of the, the kind of violence that disrupted them. So without going too far deep into, into all of that, I believe Apis has experienced this kind of this kind of deep trauma and and his he's still trying to work through it. And, and, and part of it is is putting on these identities. But but part of these identities is also that he's 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 trying to find a new way to reach audiences and a new way to tell native history. And by telling that history, isn't he engaged in constructing a new narrative, a narrative that, that settler colonialism has worked so hard to disrupt, to, to, to keep the Indian, the native, um, history and, and native experiences out of the picture. And, and here's William Apis trying to figure out how to tell that history, that the eulogy on King Philip is a deeply historical work that, that tries to see, uh, uh, experience from a native perspective, and I think he's still doing that. So he's trying to create the narrative that that can bring us back to what Jonathan Sh- uh, Shays calls Themis, or or the idea of what's right. And and what's right has never been there's there's never been a voice for what's right for Native people in the dominant discourse. He's trying to create it, and and I you know I don't know if this is something he can do or not. We sort of this is the point where we we leave him.
2: So both uh, perpetuating and overcoming the trauma. Um, so, uh, last last question: uh, You argue that his wounds, quoting that, um, and peripatetic as well as polyamorous native practices resulted resulted in Apis's separation from his family at the end of his life, his embrace of a new consort Elizabeth, and periodic intemperance, quoting that, at the end of his life. Yeah, in
1: 1837. Well, let me, let me, something. I'm sorry, let, let me correct that. I, I don't say that he had pure, periodic intemperance, nor do I suggest he was polyamorous, or maybe I don't. I'm not suggesting he had multiple partners, but we, we know that when he died, he was living with a woman named Elizabeth who identified herself as his wife. So it, it's, it seems that he, he ha- had moved on to another domestic relationship of some sort that we didn't know about. Um, prior to the coroner's report um, about his death, so what happens in the coroner's report is is it, it suggests that he had been drinking, and 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 this led to a great deal of speculation in the press afterwards, reporting on his death, that Apis had had, and and I have to say, because this is part of what I explore in my book, is the way that this this one little comment that his wife made that that he had been out he had had a drink or two or something like that how this got blown up to 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 fill out a cultural stereotype that that apis had descended into sloth and alcoholism and 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 resorted back to his his native state right which is which is what everybody in the dominant culture believes an in indian is is somebody who who Apis has risen above his status, and now he's sinking back down to, to the place where he belonged. And and I think the narrative that is being constructed around him really tries to um, place him in that position. And what I try to do is kind of unpack that and, and, and show that. I, I mean, I don't know if Apis had an occasional drink. Again, you can see this. This happens with Samson Ockham. Samson Ockham had to apologize publicly and, and was humiliated um, very publicly. I uh, had to make these statements to the, to the religious community uh, that, that he had been intemperate and whatnot. And, and and later on in his journal, he notes, you know, I was never intemperate. Yeah. I've had a, a cordial every now and then. Um, but, but the dominant culture is so, so eager to fit native people into the little peg hole that they've, that they've carved out for them that, that any little bit of evidence like this can just be exploited to to create this whole narrative that I don't think APIS fit into. So what I was trying to point out at the end was that, all right, as, as an indigenous man, he probably did not know many stable, monogamous relationships in his life. You know, his parents split up, families were ripped apart routinely in indigenous communities throughout the Northeast. It was a very hard economically and, and culturally to hold these things together. But it's also maybe important to realize that monogamy is is also a, a, a Christian import, right? This is not an indigenous tradition. Um, and so there, there wasn't this deep-rooted tradition of monogamy in Pequod culture. So the fact that he was with another woman at this time in his life, it seems it can almost seem uh scandalous perhaps from a dominant perspective but but from his perspective, it was probably it's it's not really that unusual and so and so there it is and and what I think we need to do is just understand it not as as like part of this narrative of dissent at the end of his life. I want to see it that that William apis was still really much still very much in the game still trying to 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 Follow his his vision and his ministry and his mission of advocacy for Native people, and you know I talk about it at the end of the book about how there's this curious um, moment I find where he's in Washington D.C. with a um, uh, 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 a group of I think Potawatomi natives who are visiting D.C. at the time, and he's he's uh, he's he's in contact with them and, and he like apparently. He must have done some sort of impromptu uh, sermon and he brings them out onto the, the Washington Mall. And, and whatever happened there, we don't know precisely what, but the, the, the newspapers saw this as, as, as APIS doing a little bit of rabble rousing. And, and he probably was, but it shows APIS still out there stirring up trouble, um, uh, uh, finding ways to publicize and, and make make visible uh, Native presence in in on the u s scene, so it, it's an interesting you know the end of his story, like a lot of his story is 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 kind of murky. We're seeing it through that that glass darkly to a certain extent, but but I want to go against type in my book and read Apis as somebody who's still still going at it. and and it's all it's often been speculated that his death was because of alcoholism, liver failure, um, any number of things related to his decline. But when I ran his story past a number of physicians, and didn't tell them anything i just said here are the symptoms as as they are actually uh, presented in the coroner's report and every single one of them told me that this is a casebook study of appendicitis a casebook they said yeah that that's classic appendicitis and what happened was he was sick he was really ill that was the the infection probably the uh the infection was was moving through his body and then he felt better just before he died he 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 And he gets up, he he looks at himself in the mirror, and and I thought this was a really compelling moment in some ways to highlight. And and then he brushes his teeth, which is this incredibly domestic thing to do, and he sits down for toast, and he says, yeah, I feel fine. And then two hours later, he's dead. What happened was his appendix ruptured at that point. And often when somebody's appendix rupture, they've had all this pain and pressure and buildup, and all of a sudden, it feels okay. You get this incredible relief, but actually... At that moment, the infection spreads to the rest of your body and you die so that's uh, that's how I'm sort of looking at apis's last moments as something that could not have been prevented, could not have been diagnosed um, he dies of a, of a ruptured appendix.
2: So some uh, U.S. and Native sources regarded as intemperates, and then you argue instead of polyamorous uh, Native polygamy. I actually have a question about that very compelling, um, uh, his role as escort and orator for those dignitaries in Washington. Um, Do you have any idea on how he secured this position Um, uh, at all? And he kind of elaborated.
1: Yeah, yeah. I, I don't think he was in any sort of official capacity at all. I think he was there. He was probably there because I, I've I've found that he um, he had uh, churches that he would visit as part of his route. He didn't make it down there often, but he'd been down to Washington before, and I think he was going back down that way, probably to feel out some of his old connections. But I think he just somehow he, he found out that there was this this uh, contingent of, of native. Um, uh, ambassadors who were visiting DC and, and he, he went to visit them and, and, and he apparently, uh, stirred us, he, he created a scene of some sort, um, in, in probably what I like to think is a positive way. I think these, 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 this, this native, uh, this, this group of natives who have been brought to DC, they, they were often very, um, they were managed pretty closely, and and they weren't supposed to necessarily be off doing their own thing. This was a very uh, tightly orchestrated publicity bit of public diplomacy on the part of the U.S. and and importantly for for the the Native contingency themselves. But I think Abis kind of showed up and he he brought them out on the mall and and probably gave some sort of lecture or something. Maybe you know anything that he had in his his wheelhouse of of, of, of sermons or lectures that he would give and 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 stirred things up a little bit and i and and I love that about him that's what he does. he stirs things up um he he's not he's not happy with the status quo, and he's bringing attention to things in ways that that completely disrupts the the micromanaging of the dominant discourse
2: agreed on that point uh, well thank you very much uh professor um I also have one final question um is, are there any uh, anything uh, we can expect for you in the future? Any books you're writing? Any new, fresh research that you can
1: discuss at this time? Yeah, sure. Thanks for asking. I, I, I was asked to write um, an introduction to native literature um, for people who want to teach it and, and, and need some assistance. I, I'm working on that right now. And I, I guess what I'm envisioning, my, my next real research project will be looking at the um, – The uh, banished colonist Roger Williams from from Puritan times, uh, Puritan New England, who founded Rhode Island. But I want to look at his time living with the Narragansett, uh, the Narragansett natives, uh, out of which, out of that experience, which came this really interesting uh, book that he published called "A Key into the Language of America." Uh, Williams knew the language, understood it, um, was pretty intimate with it. But this is a really interesting document, and and it gives us a window. Well, I think Williams's life in general will give us a window, but I want to try and see it from a Narragansett perspective and, and use his his book to help unlock that that history a little bit. So that, that's what I'm I'm envisioning right now. Definitely looking forward to it. Thank you so much for your
2: time today, uh, Professor. Um, yeah, for thank all our you, listeners Ryan. Uh, I appreciate it. Yes, for all our listeners, thank you as well, and uh, tune in next time.